Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. familiar faces and non-familiar faces. So we've been going all day long here. Um, Maybe you can smell it. (laughs) So we're in the finished the second day of a five-day intensive. So we get up early and sit and practice asana, do our asana practice at the temple next door, and we eat lunch together, more and more practice. And um, first day is always exciting because you get to meet other people. Uh, For some people it's terrifying because they have to be themselves and uh, get to know their social body. Um, And one of the things that's nice to watch in these intensives, um, which we do every season, is uh, what happens is is your favorite ideas get challenged. A, because we're um, nitpicking in philosophy and working with each other so that you can't hold on to your favorite viewpoints. And secondly, you actually have to practice. So you sit, stillness, and in the stillness, the thing that you usually watch is not the stillness. You usually watch all the habit energies showing up. Is this true for anybody? Apparently this is what happens. (laughs) (laughs) And... um, And then in the asana practice, we start stretching the breath pattern, stretching the nervous system pattern, and enter into new um, matrices of sensation and emotion and old memories. And I think it's hip to call them core beliefs. Is that what they call them now? I saw an ad for something called core belief engineering. I was trying. What comes up in your mind when you hear core belief engineering? Yeah. (laughs) If you would pay for that? (laughs) Um, And what's interesting to watch is um, that, in a way, it's a lot like pruning rather than engineering. Is that if you're a good gardener, 
you know when the right time is to prune something so that the natural energy that flows through that plant or whatever you're pruning um, bursts forth. And then, as we were talking about today, it overflows and a new form is created. Nobody knows why. Really, we don't know why. We don't know how exactly. We get good at the technique. What we're interested in watching is when you prune and then the energy flows through. This is what happens when we practice, is that we're pruning all the dead ends, so to speak. Did we talk about this last week? Dead ends. And the dead ends are basically all of those thought patterns, all of those grooves that we follow. And again, it's not just mentally, but it's also very um, physically. The sense organs are following their favorite clinging patterns. Just like when you sit in the practice, it takes a long time for the eyes to get receptive. They're so busy trying to look for something and then finding things and deciding about them. I'll look at that dot, but I won't look at that dot. That's sacred, but that, that's just dirt. Can't look at that, right? So you watch this, even this momentum of clinging happening in the eye organ or in the ears. We can notice sound, or we can pick a sound, follow it along. And there can be great aversion just to silence even though it's what gives us so much energy and the space where healing can happen. So uh, this weekend, some of you were at a workshop, um, and what we were exploring was working with hindrances or working with aversion. And one of the teachings on working with hindrances is, first of all, recognizing exactly what aversion is. And the word for aversion is pratigaha, which means uh, to strike against something. So in order for there to be aversion, there has to be an object. So the mind objectifies what's arising so that there can be a... Object? Subject. Great. So, finally. (laughs) came through so um, we objectify what's showing up so that we can then be a subject and in the objectification of what's arising the subject feels more and more real it's called duality and then in that space we get dukkha we get suffering so the mind determines that something's not agreeable And then in the striking against that, which uh, I like to call the condemning mind, mind condemns this. This um, is unbearable, or this is not appropriate. And we start to see that the root of aversion is Anger. anger. Yeah. This is so hard to see. We don't recognize that under the surface of the condemning mind is a subcurrent of anger. The example that I've been thinking about this week is a really a, a, a really disturbing story that I've been contemplating a lot, which I was learning about in a film this week, a documentary, about a young boy who, living in San Francisco, 
uh, I think he was 11 or 12 years old, um, some kids thought that he walked like a fag. And so, because of his effeminate gait, they beat him up. And when they were hitting him, they knocked his head into the sidewalk and he died. And this terrible act of violence, and what's most disturbing about it is how quick aversion can lead to anger. How fast. You see just someone's gait, and that's enough to kill them. And it's interesting when you think about the psychology of war in the popular media, (coughs) how most people, when nationalism is present, don't know too much about the enemy. Really don't know too much about the enemy. And that the aversion that shows up in the mind because of what we receive as propaganda or whatever you call it, quickly leads to anger. And anger in the most quiet forms, like voting for a government that supports a foreign policy that projects, that scapegoats, um, and that um, has aversion built into the mechanism. And then you see it in yourself. Exceeding yourself. And so it doesn't take much for a little bit of aversion to spring into anger. And so we're trying to catch aversion right at the beginning so we can see the striking against action. You see? And it's interesting because all of our distractions, is anybody distracted? All the distractions come down to either attachment or aversion. But if you look really deeply into attachment, it's actually aversion. And if you look really deeply into aversion, it's actually attachment. Aversion is attachment to pleasure. And the pleasure that we get from clinging to a viewpoint. You see? And so we can see that the, the roots of anger are just underneath this striking against striking against. And so rather than thinking of anger as something that is caused by something external, we see that the external cause is not what's creating the anger. The anger is created of the aversion, not the external cause. Has anybody here ever been angry? Apparently it happens. Not so much in Parkdale, but in other places (laughs) in the city. Anger sometimes arises due to aversion due to aversion. And the aversion is housed in preferences, right? Psychological preferences. Physiological preferences also. And um, so in the pruning that we're doing, we're, we're not cutting anything off. And it's hard to sometimes see the difference. So we're not cutting off the aversion, we're just noticing it. And we spent a whole weekend this past weekend exploring how to work with aversion. And the two first steps are the most difficult, actually. The first step is knowing that aversion is present. Could you imagine that? So aversion is present, and you might even say, aversion is present. It's not usually what happens. Okay? So let's say some pain arises, 
What is your first response in the mind? For real, without editing. Don't like this. Don't like this. Go away. Kill it. Oh no. Where are the poets? What's that? Not again. Yeah. It'll never go away. Never go away. So usually as aversion arises, we don't notice the aversion. We label it with um, aversion, but hidden in language, you see. And so the label of it has aversion built into it, you see. And then we objectify what's arising as something to get rid of, but we don't recognize the aversion, we just focus on the object. And then we're so busy trying to get rid of the object, we don't realize how we're conditioning what's arising. Conditioned arising. Remember we worked on this in September? Conditioned arising. That, that the perception through action, because perception is a form of action, conditions what's materializing. So the first step in working with aversion is aversion is present which is called swallowing the projection. It's also called spiritual indigestion. (laughs) Because when we first get on the spiritual path, we want everything to be easily, it's like, what are those cookies called? Digestive. You know, digestive? (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, so you're supposed to do your meditation practice and it's supposed to be just like, you know, drinking warm milk, soy milk, (laughs) and uh, eating organic digestives from California somewhere. But that's not what happens. What happens is you expect some kind of tranquility and what actually arises is this flip-flopping, this oscillating between raga, attachment, wanting, dvesha, aversion, anger. And then the mind doesn't even want to see that that's anger. The mind doesn't want to see that attachment is wanting. We want it to be simpler than that. Oh, it's just a little aversion. Does this make sense? The second step, which is very difficult if you can't work with the first step, when aversion is present, notice aversion is present. When aversion is not present, know what it's like. Know what it's like when aversion is not present. What does the absence of aversion feel like? One of the things we were exploring on the weekend is how the big aversions okay, are usually not what cause most of the problem. Most of the problem is just like the tone of aversion and distraction that's there all the time. Mini aversions. Mini aversions that are just rumbling throughout the day under the surface. And what happens is we get so used to them being part of the landscape, the psychic landscape, that we lose our urgency in working with them. Because we think they don't really cause trouble, you see, until you start practicing. And then you start putting more time into your practice, then you start to notice that actually all of that fluttering and clinging and storytelling is really exhausting. Really exhausting. So tiring. And 
you can't let yourself get this tired because the fish need you and the rivers need you and your family needs you and architects need you because look what they're building. (laughs) You noticed what they're building? Yeah. So we need you to be out there like hanging yourself from some of these buildings. I mean, like not hanging, you know. And... uh, and uh, not letting them, you know, bolt one more piece of steel onto one of these monstrosities, especially along the lakeshore. You know? But we're too busy oscillating between the bank and the coffee shop that, like, we miss it, you see, because we're caught up in our confusion. Does this make sense? So, one of the things that's so valuable about evenings like this is that we practice together and you have little moments, just small, small moments where no aversion is present. Just a moment where there's stillness. Or maybe it doesn't even happen formally. Maybe you walk in the room and for the first time someone said hello to you today. Really said hello to you. Or they ask you how you are and they actually care. Or they ask you how you are and you're not paying them to ask you how you are. (laughs) Or someone says good night and you feel they mean good night. Or you see someone sitting beside you and they're really struggling. And you can relate because you know that. You know evenings when you sit here and you just can't settle. And you accept that because you know that also. So, to know the aversion and also know what the absence of aversion feels like. And when there's an absence of aversion, that's also, if you think of perception as karma, as action, the absence of aversion is an action that plants a seed so that now you know what it's like. And hopefully that groove can get deeper and deeper and deeper so that you can start to relate to the aversion with um, some stillness. And that's action. It's not passivity. It's karma. It's creativity. There's a wonderful story about this where people are in a monastery Someone's got the job as being the cook. It's a hard job. Got a cook for everyone in the monastery. So that's cooking practice. So they're cooking the soup, stirring up the soup, and they don't realize, but a snake gets into the kitchen, gets into the soup, and gets boiled in the soup. Could you imagine this? Boiled in the soup. And then, person's dishing out the soup into bowls, doesn't realize that there's a snake in there, dead, guts boiled. What happens when a snake gets boiled, do you know? It tastes great. It tastes great. <laughs> <laughs> Depends what kind of snake. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> um, so, brings the bowl over to his teacher, places the bowl in front of the teacher, and the teacher puts his spoon into the bowl, puts, and as he's doing this, 
picks up the dead snake and and just as he's biting it, the student sees what's happening, reaches over, grabs the snake out of half in spoon, half or third in spoon, third in bowl, third in mouth, pulls it out and puts it in his own mouth. And then leaves to go to the kitchen. That's the story. The title of the story is called Eating the Blame. Mm-hmm. Eating the Blame. If you were the cook, you'd come up with some story about how someone else left the door open. <laughs> you know, you asked so and so to keep an eye on the soup, you know, or you'd, you know, I don't. And actually, What's interesting about the student is they didn't see this snake go into the soup, right? Total accident. But in the moment, no blame. Right away. What's interesting, though, is the student doesn't swallow the snake. Okay? Doesn't swallow the blame. Just catches the blame, takes it to the kitchen, lets it go. Okay? Could you imagine this? Could you imagine doing this with your lover this week? Eating the blame. What would that look like? A few weeks ago we were asking the question, who is the other? Who is the other? This is a very interesting practice. Because you can do it intrapsychically with mental objects, but you can also do this interpersonally. Right? Is recognizing when aversion arises, so when this, um, what did I say I was calling it? Something mind? Condemning mind. When the condemning mind is trying to push something out of awareness, um, we're recognizing how we're creating the other. And then we focus on the projector rather than the projected. Yes? And you eat the blame. I don't know how it tastes. Jack seems to me. (laughs) (laughs) Does this this jive with your your experience? I'm just curious. I, I thought that the, you know, before the anger is the fear, that if we think about blame and and aggression and uh, anger, there's always mm-hmm. this underlying fear. Fear, yeah. Mm-hmm. There is, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, the fear is called abhinivesha, which unfortunately is usually translated by scholars as um, the fear of death. The fear of death. But actually, abhinivesha really means the fear of the death of the viewpoint. So the fear of the death of the story of me. Okay? So when anger is present, there's a lot of abhinivesha. There's a tremendous fear of letting go of the viewpoint. And the energy of the anger is what's repressing the fear. Okay? And so as the anger starts to settle, the fear starts to increase. Which is kind of interesting. Right? And... um, so the job of the therapist in that moment 
is to try and hold someone in the anger without blame. Right? And if you don't get if you don't let somebody throw the blame of the anger outside of themselves, then you're you're basically keeping them in the fire. You know? They're burning in it. And if they don't project it outward, then the anger starts to settle and fear arises. It's really interesting. And what's the fear? The fear is the possibility that their viewpoint is not the only viewpoint. Because when you're angry, you can't take in another viewpoint. You see? That's why nationalism is so dangerous. Because you have to scapegoat another country in order to have nationalism. Because you have to have an object to create such subjective identity. But most of the time, if you can't contact the fear, um, then you have to explore the anger enough that you can get a little bit of feeling to happen so that the fear can arise. Because uh, when you're angry, you don't feel anything. It feels when you're angry like you really feel something, but you don't feel anything. That's why it's called a blind rage. Right? Because it's blind, numb, devoid of feeling tone. Yeah. People actually talk about going on a rage and not feeling anything. Right? Because all kinds of things happen in domestic violence. Someone punches a window, cracks the window, their hands all bloody, they're yelling, and then the partner says, Your hand's bleeding. They didn't realize it. You know, you hear these stories all the time. Don't feel anything. You're out of the body, out of feeling. So the work is to try and get the anger to settle down so feeling can arise. And sometimes some fear is really mixed up in that. And one of the ways the fear is prevalent is that somebody can't stop blaming. Blaming, 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 blaming. So convenient. Objectifying, 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 objectifing. Subjectifying, subject. Is subjectifying a word? Subjectifying, yeah. Subjectifying. The interesting thing about pruning is that when you cut things in just the right way, the way the energy flows, the way the healing happens in the plant, is that tremendous vitality there. It's like, has anybody here ever seen um, a forest after a forest fire? It's so amazing. It's usually where the best flowers are. In the wilderness, Is you try and find the areas where there's just been a forest fire. And... Um, this is an example of a healthy system. It is a system that falls apart and can self-organize and rebuild itself. So a computer is not a good system. Breaks down, it's dead. Uh, uh, a wristwatch, don't have one, but a wristwatch, a uh, Blackberry. Blackberries, not good systems. You're getting like, oh, there's a great system. And then like the battery dies. 
not a good system. But the human body, really good system. Cut your hand, and if things are balanced, a scab appears, right? Then the blood congeals more and more and more, scab falls off. Uh, Dreaming is like psychic scabbing, you see? You have a dream, something's imbalanced in the conscious, unconscious. Nighttime, the dream comes in, presses things into awareness so they can be brought into the conscious mind and things balance out again. See? Healthy system. Okay? But if you're always clinging to your story about the truth of things, this is not a healthy system because it can't break down. So the ability of your mind to break down a lot, um, which is called practice, which is just like traumatizing the storyteller in an elegant way, um, is creating a vibrant, healthy system. It's like your psychic immune system so that we create the conditions for intimacy, for love. That's the practice. So what yeah. happens to the anger? To the anger? Yeah, you see, there's an undercurrent of anger here. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, by by clinging or um, aversion, yeah, you can generate that anger, allow that anger to come forth. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, where does it go when you're not clinging and you're not having aversion? Well, you you don't give it recognizing. Yeah, that you don't you don't you don't. Um, keep the ground that fertile because you're not visiting a lot, it a lot. So, so it just chills out. Yeah. Yeah. And so what keeps karma going are greed, ill will, and what's usually translated as delusion, which doesn't, I don't like that so much, so I translate it as confusion. So greed, hatred, and confusion are the three roots that keep the negative karma recycling, okay? But they don't exist in like a personal storehouse that's like a place in your brain. Um, they, they just show up in certain conditions. And so if the conditions are right, that pattern's going to show up, if the conditions are right. But it's not like... Sometimes we have this idea, mainly because of Freud that there's something called the unconscious. Even in Sanskrit, there's no prefix the. So you can't make anything reified like that. So there's just, rather than thinking of the unconscious, it's helpful to just think of unconsciousness. You see? Because we have this idea when we say the unconscious, is like there's like this box back here somewhere, and like if you lie on a couch in the right way for four times a week, the box will open up and then it'll start speaking and you'll be healed. Um, great theory. The problem is, is that the unconscious doesn't work like that. <coughs> and this is what the feminists are so good at reminding us of, is um, things happen intersubjectively. <coughs> So actually, what can give rise to the anger is the therapist, right? Because you set up the right conditions, and the anger will arise. 
But oh no, it has nothing to do with me. I'm completely objective. So I'm the man sitting behind the couch in the chair, analyzing you, and I'm right.